Tadam, got it. <laughs> okay. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat Podcast today with BJ Falk. Hey, BJ, how's it going? Hello, Jonathan. I'm doing good. How are you? I am amazing. Uh, it's going to be another amazing conversation. So I'm glad uh, that we can make this happen. I'm glad that you found some time. Uh, honored that you found that for us. And uh, we're, you know, kind of starting always with the same icebreaker question in the sense that, you know, we would like to obviously know who's it that we're talking to. And I guess it's also kind of the easiest question for you to, to kind of answer because you need to talk about yourself. So I would like to, you know, ask you to kind of go, you know, in a storytelling way through your professional career of what, you know, where are you coming from and uh, where are you today? What are you doing? Wow. Let me start where I'm at now and then I'll back up. How about that? Let's, let's do that. So, uh, I'm a behavior scientist at Stanford University and I run a research lab there and I teach there. And I've been doing that for about 20 years. And I've taught probably 20 different courses at Stanford that I've come up with. So I always, most years, I'll create a brand new course on some topic and I'll teach it. Then my research lab is independent of my teaching and sometimes it overlaps. And so it's that, I love it. I love doing the research. I love doing the teaching and so on. And then also snapshot of today, I spend about half my time in industry working on industry things and training and so on. So it's this mix between academics and industry. How did I get here? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, oh, I, I just, I've kind of done things in unconventional ways. I don't think there's a clear path to like, how do you be part-time academics and part-time in industry and make it work? Um, I've always loved learning in school. So you go back to when I was an undergraduate, I took seven years, I was in no hurry, I took any class I felt like, I uh, did all the pre-med stuff, I was an English major, I traveled a lot, and then started focusing in on, and then I started my own company as well, which was launched by PageMaker when it was brand new. So I could do things that couldn't be done before uh, for at a cost that couldn't be done. So I was going to school and stuff, and then running my own little boutique information design firm, which didn't have a name back then. Um, but I, I I called it document design back then, thanks to Karen Shriver. Thank you, Karen. And fast forward, uh, figured out what I wanted to do for my graduate work, uh, which was to understand, and this was like 1992, um, it, I was really interested in how I believe technology and computers was gonna was going to be designed to influence people. To, and so these two worlds coming together, to me, it was just crystal clear. This is gonna happen. You know, at the time in 1992 or those, maybe it was as early as 91, it wasn't apparent at all that computers would be used to influence our attitudes and behaviors. But to me, it was because I come from a tradition a culture that is about optimizing your health and your wellness. And also in my home, it was a very geeky home. My dad like soldered together his own computer, computer chips and wrote his own code. And we had this massive box in our garage that was one of the first microwaves ever, which probably, you know, we got radiation. But anyway, we're early adopters. <laughs> and so just seeing this mix was like, well, this is gonna happen. And that's what I wanna really dig into. And so it turned out that Stanford was the best place for that. Did my doctorate at Stanford. Oh, while still moonlighting and running my company. 
um, but started looking at systematically the potentials and the pitfalls of how technology could be designed to influence us. Um, and then ended up during the course of my doctoral work running a series of true experiments, laboratory experiments to show that the power this could have, and then also being worried about how would this power be used for good or evil, you know, and how can we, it's going to happen one way or the other, you know, whether I study or not, it was going to happen, of course, but then trying to get ahead of things and say, how do we, how do we get people to use this for good? And so in 1996, if you go back, I, I sketched out 10 pages of little storyboards like here, and I called it Team Fit. Team Fit, here's this device that Susan uses. It helps her at the gym and it links in a virtual coach and her real doctor and it helps her, you know, get fit, achieves her. So that was 1996. And that was actually part of my dissertation. They let me put this little cartoon strip in the back, uh, 10 pages explaining what was going on. But that's certainly... I saw those potentials, but also wanted to inspire companies to develop this soon, which didn't really happen for 20 years, probably until a system like this was put in place. So after I was done with my doctorate, kept a foot in the door at Stanford, thanks to uh, people there that uh, championed me, but I went out and got a full-time industry job as well. And then have been doing stuff like that, living in both worlds for almost 20 years. And super fun stuff to do. I, I get a both in industry and at Stanford, I get to pretty much pick the projects I want, the research questions I want, and so on. And in 2009 or so, my work shifted dramatically away from persuasive technology. I felt like my lab, we'd done what we needed to do in the space. And I and my lab members became just much, much more interested in habits and human behavior, nothing to do with technology. So the, our work had shifted. We renamed the lab to the Behavior Design Lab. Early, it was called the Persuasive Technology Lab, but we weren't doing that anymore. Um, there was a project in 2009 and 10. It's like, we're not going back to technology. We're going to keep going with what we're doing here. And that's where we are. So we do various projects, but it is a focus on how do you help people be happier and healthier. And behavior change is a big part of that. And so right now, I'm, we're doing a new uh, research project in my lab that's about helping people be happy and healthier. And I'm doing a new course that I start in seven days, which is about how to strengthen professional relationships for increased health and happiness with Stanford. It's a pilot course and like my other courses, it's new and it's different. And I tell students, this might be a total disaster. It's like a startup. You know, we'll get started. We don't really know where we're going. Uh, but there's nothing else quite like it at Stanford, helping students be happier, healthier, uh, less anxious, less upset by COVID and everything that's happened in the last three years by focusing on building their professional relationships now. So, bam, we're up to the present day. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I love it. Um, if you say moving away from technology, like, uh, let me, let me, um, you know, I need to ask a question here because, uh, and I'm going to get to another topic that I, uh, an, another follow-up question. But if you're saying, like, we moved away from technology to more, let's say, you know, um, really studying, you know, behavior and how to, how to kind of change behavior 
isn't technology kind of more or less a driver a tool you know yeah. or kind of like an a channel sure. a channel where yeah. things are happening yeah yeah and the difference is this so let's go back to about 2007 mm. or so i ran a class on stanford about persuasive video now that we can put video online and everybody can access it how do you use video to influence and persuade um, I ran a class and a conference on how do we use texting or messaging to improve health. And at that time, it was like CD-ROM and all this was all, and people thought it was so backwards, like texting or messaging. And I was like, no, this is a big deal. And people didn't really uh, care that much. I mean, they did, like 350 people came to the conference and so on. But people felt it was not very <laughs> progressive, but the psychological power. I mean, I saw that of just messaging. It's like, let's focus just on messaging, asynchronous messaging. What can we do with this for health, for example? Um, and then we ran uh, a course and a Stanford conference on how do we use mobile phones? This was before iPhone. How can mobile phones be used to help us improve our health? So that's different than today where we're looking, you know, at video, texting, mobile phones, like the lens was looking through what technology could do. And that was the starting point. Now it's not the starting point. It could be how you deliver or scale, but that our research questions aren't driven by framing it in terms of technology today or technology's potential. Yeah. And, and, and what, what has been that crucial point, like to, to, to make that decision, like what, what has really, because, because it seems because you seem to be to have have been in this really really early and you know and and it seems like if you look at the industry right now it's like really accelerating and like we can we will talk about this later you know it's still not solved you know there's a lot of talk about behavior change and you know and yeah. and, and then kind of pushing that through technology but it's still like it's and 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 now you're kind of like you know you're reframing or you're going to uh you're coming from a different lens how how's yeah. how, how does that fit together well, as everyone listening to this knows, technology is a lot like magic dust that then causes people to change their behavior. And that became quite clear. Um, even when we uh, were doing the conferences and the classes and so on, it's like, no, you still have to get the psychology right, you know? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. the fact that it's texting or the fact that it's video online or the fact that it's a mobile phone doesn't mean that it, changes anybody any faster or better. You've got to get the psychology right. And so I think it was my frustration with trying to help innovators succeed. And they were just thinking that technology uh, was th the missing piece. And it's like, no, 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 you, you're, you've not designed it from a psychological perspective that will help people create habits and change in the long term. So I think it was that frustration, just mm. seeing mistakes over and over and over of, no, you got to put the right experience, give people the right experience. Now, fast forward to today, I've really summarized it in two sentences, and I didn't know this 10 years ago or 12 years ago, but it really comes down to if you want to help people change for good, lasting change, change that endures, you've got to do two things. Number one, help people do what they already want to do. And number two, help people feel successful. Those are the two keys. You can set aside all the other 
I think, in my opinion, <laughs> theories and models and everything. You've got to do those two things in order to help people create new habits or make changes that endure. Now, you can do that through technology. You can do that face-to-face, -face, et cetera. Again, it's help people do what they already want to do. Notice, it's not persuade people to do things they don't want to do, right? So it's not getting people's, I mean, so, you know, persuasion implies that you would have some influence on people where they would do something they didn't intend to. That's how I looked at it back then. But now it's not even, you know, opening up new potentials. Like, what do you already want to do? And how do we help you do that? Technology is a good way to do that. And the next is to help people feel successful because that's what wires in the habit. That's what wires in um, more of the lasting change. And that what that's what causes the identity shift. So they didn't think of themselves differently. So the summary there, I guess, going back is you got to get the psychology right. And then over 10 or 12 years, boiling it down to two things. And I call them maxims. Those are the two things that you have to do. And every product that works in the long-term, that's what they do. You know, let me talk about, or let, let, let me dig a little bit deeper into the first one, because the first one seems more complex if you, if you dig into it. Um, and because both of them, if you, if you say if you condense them down to two things, it seems simple, but we know that it's not simple, right? We know that it's not so. It's not. It's, it's, it's easy to say, but <laughs> exactly. it's hard to do well. You know? <laughs> so maybe you know. Let Let's break it down, right? So what from from a you know everybody. I always always say it this way, right? Everybody knows that it that it's good to do sports, right? Everybody knows that it's good to eat healthy, right? Um, but still. The amazing part about our uh, physiology, right, is that especially, you know, in our, um, or let me phrase it differently, there's two, three decades where we can really live recklessly in the sense of like, we can do, we can do whatever we want, and we're not really getting punished, right? And those first signs of, of you know, um, or those first paybacks that we got to give or feel are at like, you know, at, at a later stage. So, Yes, we know if, if, you know, commenting now on the first part that you said, right, help people to do what they already want to do. I guess, you know, for, from a healthy standpoint, that's very clear, right? People want to probably get more fit, right? Want to eat healthier, etc. I guess that, that, you know, if you would ask anyone that that will be probably the case, right? I don't think there would be anyone saying like, yeah, you know what, I intentionally want to eat bad, or I intentionally don't want to be fit, whatever. So why is it that difficult, then? Let's, 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 you know, maybe from your experience and from the different kind of research projects you've gone, gone through, um, you know, since kind of like changing into that direction from a psychological standpoint, right? Yeah. Why is it that, like, let's go into the details of why is yeah. it that difficult? Two reasons. Uh, and there might be more, but let me just do these two. Number one is we have competing motivations. Somebody may want to eat healthy, but they may also want to watch the football game and eat pizza with their friends. So we're pulled in two different directions, then multiple directions, not just two. So in any given moment, we may be wanting different things in that moment, right? And so it's not always eat healthy because the context of being with friends at football or a party may uh, win out. Um, next, and it's a different way of looking at it, 
the specifics of that eating healthy people may want that but do people want to eat kale or do they want to eat sardines i mean what are the specifics so if somebody and this fits more into behavior design and what i do god almost every day is help companies think this through and get it right yes people want to be healthier and they know one piece of that is eating in a, a better way but you've got to get down to the details and like i happen to like sardines who knew but i discovered this like five or six years ago and they turn out to be really really good for you um and but not everybody likes that so you've got to get down to the specifics so yes help people with the aspirations or the goals they already want but then the specific behaviors you've got to help them do what they already want to do in terms of specific behavior so if somebody does not like sardines don't have them eat sardines, <laughs> have them eat other foods that they already like and want to do. So it, it's at two levels. One is what they want to achieve, what I call the aspiration or the outcome. Most people call it the goal. And then the specific behaviors to achieve that also has to be matched to what they already want to do. So, and to, doing that well is hard. I call it the matching problem. I talk about this in my book, Tiny Habits, and there are ways of doing it and methods I've created and I teach. How do you match yourself? Let's just stay with nutrition, with the best or the, the call them golden behaviors, the golden behaviors for eating. And then how do you match others? And then how do you do that at scale through a technology? This has been solved in other domains outside of nutrition. Amazon matches us with purchases, Netflix, Spotify, et cetera, matches us with experiences. It gets better and better at knowing, and it and it cues those up. But in the health arena, especially nutrition, it, there hasn't yet, in my view, been the breakthrough company that said, yeah, you wanna eat healthier, BJ Fogg? Bam, 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 here are the things, and we're gonna get better and better and better at telling you what's gonna be healthy for you, and you're gonna like it, mm. you know? So that is, uh, it's a matching challenge and that is a big part of helping people do what they already want to do is to make it really easy for them in this case nutrition to identify and match themselves to the right foods then acquire those foods and prepare those foods and then incorporate them on a regular basis interesting um so you know let's let's uh, since since you know on this podcast we talk a, a lot about you know different types of uh you know, companies that are that are in the in, in the health space or in the in the digital health space and, and trying to use technology in order to, you know, help people essentially. Um let's 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 talk about from your perspective, what's the best way to evaluate technologies that are kind of, you know, trying to trigger behavior, uh, you know, behavior change towards, mm -hmm. let's say, you know, a healthier lifestyle. Because, you know, there's so many you know, there's been an explosion of companies, right, in 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 the space, and and every and it's it seems like you know, same as you know, telehealth, for example, as a feature is kind of a given for almost every digital yeah. startup, right? The same goes with behavior change, right? You you hear it like with almost every startup that you that is kind of like in this you know health slash wellness space, right? Is is trying to do behavior change, right? But how do you really evaluate? you know, technology, you know, or, or an app or digital interventions, health interventions, right. That are trying to utilize that. Well, what's the best way to evaluate? Oh my God. 
there are different perspectives. One is just purely a business perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, will this fly as a business? Can we make money? And I'm not going to go down that path. Um, but I will parse it out this way. Uh, let's say somebody's creating an app to help people, let's say, reduce their stress. Let's just say, pick that as a, and, but then there's also the behavior that somebody does to reduce their stress. Let's say they, I'll just pick one I do, it's called a rope flow. It's like this weighted jump rope, you swing around in kind of a dancey kind of way, which I love. I mean, I try to do it during my breaks. I go outside and I do rope flow. So let's say that's one of the behaviors that the app is getting you to do. Um, yes, a company wants, you want people to use your app, let's say your rope flow de-stress app, but you also want people to do the actual behavior. And there's a difference here, the app and then the actual behavior to be healthier. So a company uh, needs to understand that maybe your app to get somebody to develop the habit of rope flow between your meetings may be a temporary experience that once somebody masters that, they no longer need your app anymore, but they are doing the healthy behavior. It's almost like your app is training wheels to help that person achieve something. And once they do, they don't need your app anymore. Companies don't like hearing that because <laughs> it's like, you're just, you're a tw- training wheels company. And it's, and it's a success when somebody stops using you if they've acquired whatever you know, stress reduction capacity that they wanted, right? Um, but that's important to understand that just using your app may not be a success. And if people use your app every day, but don't actually change their behavior, that's not a success. But then if they stop using your app and continue with the healthy behavior, yeah, that's a success, but maybe not a business success. So you really got to parse that out. And there was a, a Exactly this, I was working with a very large company, global company, and things are going well, and it is an app, and it is a device, and it is a system. It's going really well. But as we look at the data, what's going on, most of the impact and substantially good impact happens within 30 days. Hmm. So one of the questions I asked is, maybe this is an app positioned as you use this for 30 days, and you're done, and you move on with your life, you keep doing the healthy habit but you really don't need the app after 30 days or whatever that period is. That's a pretty big shift for the company to think about. But I predict if they do that, the they'll get better onboarding because fewer people, people say 30 days, I can do that, right? It's not like I'm committing to using app for the rest of my life. A lot of people don't want to do that. And then once people get going, say they're two weeks in and they're like, okay, I just have two more weeks and I'm check the box. There is a power to have, I call it a, uh, a span behavior. It's something that's scanned back to a limited amount of time and you do it and you're done. You can repeat it if you want. Um, but that is a, one of the suggestions I made just yesterday to this company and we'll see where they go with it. Um, anyway, so how do you evaluate whether it succeeds? Yes, use of your product, but ultimately, does it actually change somebody's behavior in a way that makes them healthier? For me, that's the marker of success. But if you lose all your customers after 30 days, your most successful customers, they may not be considered a business success as much. It's it's a very, very interesting point. Um, you know, and and yeah, we're we're not gonna dig into this because obviously 
you know, we're not going to discuss uh, the, the business side of things here. But um, I, it's a very interesting point. I, I, I'm taking this one definitely for for uh, you know other episodes. But uh, another one is 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 adherence, right? So uh, in in general to anything, right? But uh, I mean, you have it in the in in the, in the healthcare sense of thing, and um, you know where where you have like treatments or kind of you know medication and stuff like that. Adherence is always a big 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 part. The same goes as well for let's say more prevent prevent prevention, right? Where mm -hmm. there there's a person is not sick yet, and I, I find it astonishing that you know even when people are sick, adherence is a problem, right? So um, when when there's when uh, a disease has or or like a, you know sickness has been diagnosed, that there adherence is still a problem, and and you know and and then you think about okay people who are not sick yet right who have not been diagnosed yet with a disease but where it's really about the prevention that adherence is such a big problem like is that something you, you definitely you know that this is definitely something you also come across when advising companies so you know let's talk about yes. that yes yes i have created a model for adherence called the adherence model it builds <laughs> off the fog behavior model um, we won't, gonna, but yes, a lot around adherence, and there's a systematic way to think about it and design for that. The challenge with uh, even sick patients adhering uh, to their medication, and it could be you know people with injuries, physical therapy, and so on, um, became apparent to me. This was probably 2002 or three at Stanford. And I'm outside my lab there and this guy comes over from the medical school. So I'm now positioned within the medical school, but at the time I wasn't. And I kind of knew who he was and he's kind of this famous heart surgeon and so on. And I don't know how this came up, but he basically said, look, you know, a third of my patients who know they will die if they don't take the medication, they do not take the medication. And I'm like, what, Richard, what are you saying? It's like, yeah, a full third of them will not take the medication, but they know full well. They're going to die, you know, I don't know if he said die, but they're going to like yeah. not do well. And I was just, oh my gosh. So I pushed a little bit harder and talked to him. And at least my takeaway, I don't know if he said it quite this way, but my takeaway from that conversation was if you just make it clear what people need to do, a third of the people will do it. And a third of the people will not. And then you have a third of the people in the middle that you can help do it. So just in my mind, a template when you look at any kind of intervention is, a you know, you're not going to get the last third. Mm. So that's okay. You're not going to get above 70%. And there's going to be a third that if you just make it clear and easy, they'll do it. And oh, by the way, that's not obvious. People don't make it clear and easy for that first third. And then there's a third in the middle that if you optimize your product, you can get them. So that really helped me set some benchmarks, um, some expectations toward any kind of um, behavior change solution that you'll never get 100%. And, you, and if you do get more than 70 or 80% of people doing stuff, there's something really interesting going on. And if you get lower than 20%, there's something really wrong going on. You know what I'm saying? Because if somebody's not getting, then it's like, okay, you haven't made it clear. You haven't made it easy. You haven't aligned it with their aspirations. And then, so, you know, if your product is, you know, the 40% of your 
customers, you retain them and they do what you want. That's, that's fine. And you can grow from there. You can get better from there. Uh, but if you're hitting a ceiling and 70% and there's 30% you just cannot hang on to, that's normal and that's okay, right? So that's not true for everything, but it's been a helpful uh, template or way to set expectations for me. And in some ways, making it more realistic about what we can do and being more realistic about human nature. A third of people won't take the medication and they know they're going <laughs> to die, but they yeah. just won't. And so what are you going to do about that? You know? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting uh, insight here as well. Um, so, you know, if if you like, uh, you know, you, you said like you spend half of your time uh, in industry, right? So um, you see a lot of uh, companies, you, you you speak to a lot of companies, help a lot of companies, etc. What's kind of your take on 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 the status quo for you know companies trying to innovate, trying to use, uh, utilize, you know? get advice from you on, on behavior change, or maybe not from you, you know, not getting advice from you, but yeah. just in general companies that are trying to, you know, build in the space. For example, you did the comparison for in nutrition to, for example, Amazon, uh, Spotify, Netflix, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, we got all these different areas of application. Um, you know, talk to me about that. Ooh, okay. So first of all, yeah, I don't, I stopped doing consulting 10 or 15 years ago. So I don't do work for hire. So everybody, you can't come hire me. And yes, <laughs> and no, you can't hire my students. I get calls all the time. Like, I know you don't do consulting, but you have students in your lab. It's like, no, they're working on other things. However, what I do is I teach and share. I mean, Tiny Habits has a big piece of what people need to know. And we have a professional version of that book now that's not about the Tiny Habits method, but it's about behavior design. It's a little pricey because we have to hand market but it's definitely worth it for innovators to get hold of the pro version of Tiny Habits. Which, um, and then I teach and train. So that's what I did this morning. That's what I do on Friday. So I, people come to my behavior design training. So I teach companies how to think systematically about behavior using my models, not old models, but new ones that I've created and how to design systematically for behavior change using the methods. And it's a system, it all works together. Um, so that's how I help companies the most is after they're done with my training, they don't need me anymore. There's sufficient to be able to do this. And so, um, but I don't do consulting and whatnot, but the, the key to your question. So yeah, you can learn my stuff, either reading, working with me. And then I do all these phone calls, like for 15 minutes where I help people and I'm ramping that down <laughs> because I'm trying to get more uh, life balance. And, um, but the, here's, I'm going to say something controversial. And if you're an academic listening, please just fast forward through this part. Do not listen to this. Um, a lot of times I'll just tell innovators, like, oh, we've read this paper and we've read this theory and <laughs> stop, 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 stop. The answer to building a great product is not in peer reviewed academic publications. How do I know that? Find any great product out there that has really taken off. How many of those were, were informed or the breakthrough came from reading an academic publication? I can't think of a single one, right? So there's not the pattern that reading, you know, theoretical stuff then helps you create a product that's a big winning product. Um, instead, get really good at trying things quickly and measuring, of course, but... 
Okay, <laughs> sorry, academics. Because um, I'm trying to save innovators' time and up-level all of the innovators um, that the people to pay attention to yeah. are the practitioners who have done this for years. So if you're trying to help people change how they eat, go to practitioners that have worked with people for years and decades and they know they get success. Those practitioners know how to help people change. Now they may not be able to articulate to you how they do it. So you've got to, you know, pull out of them what works. Okay. I have so much respect and those people have your answer, not, you know, academic theories. Now, in my case, I started coaching people in habits in 2011. You know, so I developed tiny habits method late 2010. It was crazy effective in my life. And I was like, that's insane that I can create all these habits so quickly and easily. So I started teaching it and coached two to 300 people a week, week after week after week. And I did that year after year, thousands. And so I stopped counting at 60,000 people that I'd personally coached. So that was my opportunity to be a practitioner in the trenches knowing really what works and what doesn't work. And then looking at that, now I can look back through the lenses of some theory and certainly my models and the stuff I do in behavior design is informed by that hands-on. Seriously, it was day after day, like for years, even during vacation, I was still coaching people through email in mm. mass. And I learned so much from that. So the... So tap into what practitioners have learned from their experience, successful practitioners. And what you're doing with technology is essentially taking the secret sauce of what they do to help people change, whether it's reduce stress or exercise more or eat differently, whatever. And how do we deliver that kind of an experience through a technology platform that will then scale? And hopefully you'll give your, uh, practitioner informants stock in your company. So <laughs> you're not exploiting them. They are benefiting very directly from sharing with you. Interesting. All right. You know, uh, it's, it's funny that you say that. So, let, you know, let, let me round that up with, you know, obviously uh, the, the logical follow-up question here then. Um, so, you know, you, you said go to the practitioners, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not in the academic theories but if we if we look at academia right if we look at at you and your lab for example right if we look at the field of behavior change and you know and 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 and, and the academics are working in the field what do you think is you know is their role in, in in kind of like also looking looking towards the future of like things that you kind of see you know still to be solved or things that you find interesting in the field to be to yeah. be to, you know to be studied forward well for I mean, there are some academics that just do basic research that's not practical or applicable. And some of my early work was that. I mean, the stuff in persuasive technology and the understandings there, you could not be implemented. But I wanted to have and share an understanding of that early and frankly, warn the government, which I did in 2006, about here are the problems that are going to happen. Um, so there is a sort of a basic or fundamental research component, create knowledge and insight that may not be commercially viable yet and there's it's wonderful to do that it's wonderful to learn something 
discover something or know something that nobody else knows. And you do that through research. So that's awesome. Um, my work for the last, oh, I'd say 15 years has been more practical and applied. All right. Within academics, within the academy, that is not as valued as theoretical work. Okay. <laughs> Being super applied. And especially some people categorize me as self-help now. That's like low status within the academy. All right. That is, does not get you brownie points. Um, in fact, when I was in computer science and working within there, it was like the more abstract, the more theoretical you're working, the higher you were on the status. And as you know, HCI is applied, so it's a little lower status, et cetera, although it's practical. Um, so the, gal, I lost the thread of the question. That was, that, that was just like the intro. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, I, I, the question is more or less related to, okay, so what, 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 you know, from an academic standpoint or from a research standpoint, what do you uh, see kind of like future, future topics, right? Where do you see things going, especially okay. maybe also from your perspective, right? So, yeah. but, but let me go back now. It was, what's the role then mm. of somebody within a university? One of the roles is to explore areas that a company cannot do because there's no immediate return on investment yeah, yeah, yeah. like we did with mobile phone where we did it with texting with we i mean to explore an area that you can't make a business around and understand that potential i, I think that is um some enough some companies so i i belong to a think tank back in the day that paul allen the microsoft guy funded called interval research that's what we were doing we were looking at 20 years and inventing stuff and this super secret thing. And then I headed up research for an international company in a global company. And that also, we were looking ahead quite a few years. I was H at HP Labs. We were looking ahead a number of years, but a lot of those companies shortened their horizon at, and there are not a lot of companies that can be so forward looking anymore. So now I kind of put that within um universities and colleges that's what we how we can contribute in practical ways what is interesting to me and what's on the horizon i only can talk maybe from my perspective it's hard for me to do um oh i, I really try to encourage people uh, academics to get much much faster with their research and to partner with companies in fact one of the keynotes i gave at an academic conference was the days of us doing laboratory experiments in this way are over there are companies out there that are just cranking out tests and they can do it much faster we need to collaborate with those people and be able to uh run experiments very very quickly i still think that's true that um the ways we can do research has changed and academics need to get uh, to skill up a little bit at, or a lot in terms of not doing research like come into the laboratory, we're going to read you a protocol. Da, da, da. That's just, um, just not the best way to do it. The um, one area, so to go to a very specific area where we need more research is to help people with addictions and other kinds of bad habits that are harming them. That is a very hard problem, okay? I think the challenge of creating habits, I think that puzzle is solved and I call it tiny habits. It is a solved problem of creating habits. That is relatively easy compared to the challenge of breaking bad habits or helping people with addictions. 
That is so much harder. And don't let anybody tell you there is a proven and simple way to do that. Even if it's on the cover of a book, they are deceiving you. There is no easy and proven way to break bad habits. There are ways to help people with bad habits, help yourself and so on, but there's no one way and nobody, no serious researcher would say there is a proven way to uh, help people break bad habits. There's a variety. We need a whole much, whole bunch more innovation there. We need a lot more research there. We need more understanding of how bad habits take root in our lives. And I think they actually root in our lives in about eight different ways. So depending on which category, that's how you would uproot it. That's probably some of the work we'll do in the future is characterizing what are those eight or so different ways. And the habit like smoking isn't the same for everybody. Um, it might be rooted in their lives in a different way. So if you can understand, say, the architecture of how that got rooted into your life, then you can uproot it. But you've got to understand what that means. So I'm just saying there's, I know there's not 20 and there's more than three. So I'm just picking eight. The work I'm doing right now with about helping students create professional relationships is ultimately to help them uh, be less prone to a damaging addictive behavior. So if we just really want to go what this is about, it's that. It's framed as health and happiness. You know, be healthier and happier by creating these strong professional relationships. But where we really want to take this is to understand if this will help students and later outside of Stanford, help people in general, how can building strong relationships, including professional relationships, help you cope with the anxiety and trauma of your life in a more positive way? Or if you do have bad habits and addiction, does it help you untangle those better? Um, and that's a pretty big hypothesis. It's a big swing uh, for a, a home run, but we're gonna take it, right? And again, that's, this is a role of what an academic can do that within most companies, you couldn't take this kind of risk because it is, it's really, I think, going out there. Uh, and there's a specific way we'll do it, a specific way we'll implement and measure and see what happens. Um, we're pretty ex excited about it. So if I had to pick one area, it is that, helping people with unwanted behaviors, how do they untangle? How do they get rid of those things in their lives? Interesting. That's a great note to end. Um, BJ, thanks for thanks for the time. It was really great having you on. Uh, I already saw that we're almost running out of time. So, uh, but it was great, really great having you here. And uh, you know, thanks for giving us an insight. Thank you. Super fun to talk to you. <laughs>